0: Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech. Policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul: founders, authors, executives, and other. Thought- Leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized Conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech, Rebooting Society, Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, The Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to Trondenheim.com slash books at this stage Futurized is lucky enough to have several sponsors to check them out go to futurized.org slash sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurized.org slash store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future before you do anything else make sure you are subscribed to our jonathan welcome on to on the Futurist. podcast how are you where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter yes, to the future uh, please I mean, also I mean, leave a I positive review iTunes. thanks sure. so much it seems like you've had a few of these discussions am i right <laughs> well
1: yes because the um i i my my last book called hope in hell was actually launched during covid which um should any aspiring author be listening to this please can i advise her or him not to launch a book during a global pandemic because it really doesn't work you spend a lot of time online wishing that you were in rooms with real people able to eyeball them properly so it's um anyway i have i have done quite a few of these over the last couple of years that's for sure
0: yeah yeah, no oh, I believe that. Well, let me let me uh let me attempt to characterize what you've been up to and then you please correct me because uh you, you started out studying languages at, at Oxford uh and then there's a big blank in my uh knowledge but certainly you you became then uh quickly an uh an activist and you are a past uh, head of friends of the earth and uh you are a, a obviously now an author you have done many many things written a uh, plethora of books I don't even have the count maybe maybe you have <laughs> uh, on, v- v- I'm sure you do, on various topics surrounding, uh, you know, ecology, sustainable development, climate, um, and you are also a broadcaster and, and a commentator, you know, so, uh, you know, you, you, you are um, not a stranger to giving advice, you give advice. No right that is true
1: over over many many years lots of advice given and some even occasionally listened to although those two things don't always go hand in hand that's for sure.
0: well um i don't know if this uh, uh bio was any good to you but uh maybe we can start there so you know you have obviously both you have your uh, your sort of uh you you have that political part of yourself and then you have advised both political and established figure, you know, and and business. How uh, do you know whether your advice will be taken or not? Is that something that you kind of decide early on? So there must be, there is a balance between how extreme your advice is and how realistic it is. I was just kind of curious, and as you have advised, you know, dignitaries and governments and, and businesses over a long period of time, how do you think about the issue of whether you actually wanted to be realistic that they're listening 100% to you versus kind of, and I think this is a little bit the topic of the podcast as well, how extreme should people be these days? As it seems to be a bit <laughs> kind of a core question for you.
1: Yes, that's a very, very big question at the moment, Trond. I mean, a very big question. I wouldn't use the word extreme. I would use the word realistic, as in unfolding the extremely painful truth about what is happening in the world today and not shying away from that, being prepared to put that on the table, uh, essentially as a representation of what the science tells us. And I hope it never gets to be extreme to tell people what the science tells us, because otherwise we're all in, in terrible trouble. But I think what you're pointing to there is that sometimes people can't cope with that. Sometimes they find that truth really unacceptable and difficult and psychologically disempowering. And there's a whole thing going on in the world of sustainability, which is how much truth do we actually share with people if our principal goal is to get those people to change what they're doing. And if they're going to change what they're doing, then they need to feel empowered. They need to feel that they've got some agency, that they're if you like, amongst those in a lucky position where they can influence others to change. So all of us involved in this work of sustainability advocacy, we're always thinking through some of those psychological implications. And it is, yeah, it is quite tricky. You're right. It is quite tricky.
0: But it seems important too. I mean, you were you were not the one to write that Book, but uh, there was a book, or there was an article initially on the death of environmentalism a, a good while back, right? And the, and the point the authors made in that book was essentially, uh, essentially this: you know, the movement has disenfranchised a lot of people who prob- probably would have been supporters if they just hadn't felt so attacked. You know, talk about limits, talk about moralistic. You know, don't do this, don't do that. Things are going horribly wrong. Um, arguably, the green. Even the green political parties, of which you know you you you've uh, done your fair share there as well, they for a long time remained fringe in terms of a big sort of cultural consciousness. Or even you know Bruno Latour, uh, for example, has uh, uh, you know the French uh, social scientist who just passed away. He came out yeah. with a book on the idea of a ecological class. And he claims uh, with his uh, co-author that there is the potential for very, very broad agreement on these issues if we only see it that way. And if, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of conceptualized as as a true class struggle, then then there actually must be a almost majority um, movement around it. How do you see that? Is it... forever going to be a small minority that cares about these things? Or is there scope for realizing uh, that this maybe is connected to a much larger sort of social movement? Yeah,
1: I think there is already a much larger social movement. Mm -hmm. I think Bruno Latour was completely wrong, by the way, in his characterization of all of that. Um, And I simply disagree with the idea that there is a recognizable, distinct class or tribe of sustainability-minded people who represent this somewhat elitist space. And then there's the whole of the rest of humankind struggling to make sense of their own difficult lives um and not quite understanding what these crazy green zealots are all on about that is simply the, a, a profound mischaracterization of what is going on and i'm amazed that it got so much intellectual airtime the truth is it's an extremely complex continuum of beliefs and ideas and principles and values and philosophical underpinnings and to try to segment people in that sort of way is actually one of that's one of the real problems we face not the fact that A lot of Greens insist on telling the truth about what is happening to humankind today and Mm -hmm. want to build their advocacy around that truth. But the fact that we don't recognize this continuum. So for me, yes, very clear. At one end, there are some totally, totally dedicated, persuaded sustainability professionals, if you like, who don't much care what other people think about what they say. And then you run all the way through the gamut of different human um, beliefs and understandings about what's happening, both intellectually and emotionally. And then you'll end up with a group of people who don't give a toss about any of this stuff. They literally don't care. But in between, along that continuum, you can see enormous numbers of people who are struggling to reconcile what is going on in their own lives with what they now increasingly recognize as being the truth about the state of the world and the state of society today. So I refuse to believe that efficacy as a social movement depends on lying. It seems to me that is, that is, that is so despairing, cynical, and wrong that really and truly nobody should give voice to such a sentiment.
0: So, uh, but just explain a little bit, what's the lying that you have in mind here? Well, the lying is
1: that we're somehow going to be able to sort out climate change. Oh, that that the, particular the, view. Got it. That particular lie, but that is a pretty big one, <laughs> right?
0: So, so where where do you stand? Uh, and and we'll get to the precise nature of you know your argument in uh, you know hope and hell here. But wh- where do you stand on the eco modernists? So the there was a manifesto in 2015. These people signed up to uh, this idea that. Technology can get us out of most of these troubles.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and very influential. And um, a lot of people felt that there was a really pragmatic way of confronting the crisis. Yeah. Through that lens of eco-modernism, which didn't entail a a root and branch, thorough re-evaluation of capitalism. and the nature of our growthist, consumerist society. And it was helpful along the way. It persuaded a lot of people that there was a kind of a green growth approach, which would at least meet a huge number of the challenges that we face today. But underpinning it is still this sense that you can modulate growth, you can tame growth, you can turn it to something that is beneficial to much larger numbers of human beings. And of course, we've just seen that reflected in this um, global conference, the conference in Montreal that's just concluded. Yeah. And in the final declaration from that uh, conference in Montreal, you can see growth is not challenged. There's no, there's no fundamental challenge to the notion that we can have endless economic growth on a finite planet, even though that economic growth is what has brought biodiversity, the Earth's ecosystems, to this state of near total crisis. Yeah. So this cognitive dissonance is kind of it's so deep, and you can see why people don't want to confront it, but every time we don't confront it, we end up with another ludicrous compromise about what progress means on planet Earth today. I can absolutely guarantee, John, that if we revisit this conversation in 2025, which is when the first part of the new Framework on biological diversity will be reviewed. I can guarantee it will be a total failure in 2025 and I can guarantee it will be a total failure by 2030. And that's because no one is challenging the notion that permanent exponential economic growth on a finite planet is a viable way of building a
0: better world for people. Yeah, but hold on. The The issue, though, seems to also be that these sustainable business models, and we can go through the history of it, you know, since the Brundtland Commission or, you know, even back to, uh, to kind of limits to growth and the whole thing. But even, you know, if you just look at the more contemporary terms, so natural capitalism, natural step, cradle to cradle, all of these things, you, you've even gone on record, I think, you know, as far back as 2014. And you said, yeah, these are new tools, but they're not new paradigms. And then, of course, if you want to handle the big one, you know, you have degrowth, this French notion, I guess, that somehow, uh, you know, you can have capitalism without traditional growth. Um, And I'd just like you to uh, explain to me whether what you're talking about now is a form of degrowth theory or whether you're saying there is a. Third alternative or a fourth alternative in here that's not degrowth, which to some people really rubs them the wrong way. It's not eco-modernism, which sounds too rosy and obviously technology sometimes fails, right? And it's it's a two-edged sword and it hits both, you know, many different ways. But degrowth seems to a lot of people to not really be the answer to, to everyone's problem either because it doesn't talk. To our initial discussion it doesn't speak to the growth people it just says yeah it's all wrong
1: yeah yeah yes well i i am um, i have to bear my soul here in a way because obviously during um 50 years involvement in this so i got involved in the early 70s and joined the green party in uh 1974 which of course, is the only political party that has ever really gone out of its way to challenge the growth paradigm consistently during that time. I've made endless compromises with the, the devil that is growth, basically. And I've done that for varying pragmatic reasons that if you go so hard on the fact that growth is impossible, people simply don't want to listen anymore. And I, I can tell from the, you know, in, my, in terms of my own writing, 1984, my first book, Seeing Green, where I was a very harsh critic of conventional economic growth, I've kind of modulated that attack on growth to try and bring people into a more radical and urgent sense of the need for change. And I've, you know, I'm very conscious that I've been doing that in one form or another Um, throughout my life, and it's with a view to getting people to understand the nature of the change. Right now, 2022, um, confronting the reality of how well that has worked or not, as the case may be, I, I find it harder and harder to give any support for people who think that today's model of capitalism, driven by consumerist growth, So, the growth that achieves a GDP through an expansion in consumption, I just can't go any longer with the idea that that will provide a a viable foundation for a better world. I just can't. So, I'm very, I I like to be challenging about the notion of growth. I accept that going straight to degrowth, which is no more growth at all in anywhere in the world, is not right. I think there are many parts of the world where the economic situation requires a different kind of economic growth than we've had up until now. So it's a bit messy in all honesty. And it's always been messy for me because I've had to balance pragmatism with a deep persuasion, right from limits to growth onwards. You're right, John, from that book, 1972. Yeah. Um a, a persuasion for me that this kind of growth is, is what would finally undermine humankind's aspirations for a better world.
0: So so we'll get to your 2022 perspective i have a couple of questions in a second but i was just reading capitalism as if world the world matters which is your book from a few years back and you put a, a bunch of that criticism in that book too you you talk about needing to remove subsidies that are damaging natural capital and i'm assuming you're t- generally talking about fossil subsidies but you you probably also talking about agricultural subsidies in general which in europe are well, in most nations are are enormous dollar and euro amounts. But you you say lower consumption and reducing world population is something no one wants to talk about, but they have to be done. Yet, um, you seem to still believe that sustainability as a concept can work even though kind of eco-efficiency and these very early definitions of how business and other actors were to relate to that concept perhaps weren't sufficient you're one of the people that actually sticks with the concept of sustainability which you know a lot of people in the degrowth movement and a lot of others are saying you know there's something maybe fundamentally wrong i had um Aaron felt on here uh, a few uh, months ago talking about flourishing and rejecting sustainability because he he feels like it's a complete trade-off. But you, you were at least, back in that book, you were sticking to sustainability. Why is that? Is there no other concept that can help us out here?
1: No. I think all the other concepts are just... They're just bland, empty manipulation of language what the hell does flourishing mean for four billion people on planet earth today I mean what does it really mean it's a these are just empty
0: words yeah and there's a it's a me, metaphor right it's a metaphor so but you, we can't
1: be dealing with metaphors we have got to have <laughs> real hard-edged economic and scientific constructs on which we build models of progress <laughs> that's the truth of it and the reason why I stick with sustainability and thank you by the way for mentioning that's what i stick with rather than automatically going along with sustainable development which has always troubled me as a as an idea if it's still if that development is still based on permanent economic growth but sustainability for me which is the critical scientific underpinning of how our species can cohabit with every other life form on this planet that is it's not subject to Sort of variations that depend on how you interpret different concepts. It's not subject to to um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm so I'm, the world is full of these words. Resilience, what as a, as an alternative to sustainability, prospering as an alternative. Um, all these things they they're all a critical part of living sustainably on this planet. But living sustainably is a scientific construct, and if people can't cope with the science, trust me, they ain't going to have much to offer people in the future.
0: But technology alone can't get us out of a hole. This is one of your last statements there in your previous book. You have to re-engineer our mindsets at the same time. So you do uh you do leave some space for mindsets. How do we change mindsets? I
1: think by emphasizing that not only are we in a wretched position now in terms of prospects for humankind, but we're we're not we're not giving people what they really aspire to. And when you look at what it is that people really aspire to, they don't actually aspire to the things that politicians offer them today. They aspire to some kind of basic dignity and security in their lives, an opportunity to use their own skills gainfully for themselves and their communities, a chance to live in a clean, green world, to have basic human rights respected. Every single time you do one of these sort of futuristic sessions with people, you invite people to step into the better world that they want, You'll, you'll know this as well as anyone, they pretty much always come up with the same outlines of what that better world would look like. And funnily enough, it does not depend on having more and more money every year to consume on more and more consumerist rubbish. It does not depend on that. It depends on community on trust, on security, on an ability to be with other people and in the natural world. So for me, and this is where I continue, I suppose, in the eyes of some to be quite naive, for me, the the principal answer to your question is offer people this better world. And this better world is one that isn't based on the kind of economic growth that is destroying our world. It's as simple as that. Hmm.
0: Well, hope in hell then. You... uh you're talking about a decade we've got a decade you say well first of all, all why well wh- why do we have a decade and and what is this important job we got to get done in this decade yes and i mean this
1: is really important because uh, we all do this but everybody picks up the bits of the science of climate change that suits them and and that means that we end up with an awful lot of muddled opinions about this and the the bit of the climate science that I think is hardly ever touched by politicians, Mm -hmm. is the story about carbon budgeting. So by virtue of all this amazing climate research, we know just how much of these greenhouse gases we can continue to put into the atmosphere before we trip these different thresholds. You know, people toss out these temperature thresholds, 1.5, 2 degrees centigrade. They're very arbitrary. But we have a very clear sense now from all the science from the IPCC of what is the total quantum of greenhouse gases we can put into the atmosphere and still have a reasonable chance of protecting that safe operating space for humankind. And to cut to the quick, it's around 400 billion tons of CO2 equivalent. 400 billion tons. After that, once we put the 400 billion into the atmosphere, then we're moving into this temperature increase which threatens our prospects. So divide 400 billion by 10, and you come up with roughly 40 billion tonnes a year. And guess what our emissions are today? Well, we know what our emissions are today. They're somewhere between 42 and 43 billion tonnes a a, a year. So the decade is, is based on a very realistic proposition about needing to get on top of our budget. Because if we work our way through the budget on a business-as-usual basis, that will have gone by the end, by 2030. Simple as that.
0: Okay. Well, a lot of people have technological solutions to this. I guess you are in the camp that thinks that many of these things already have solutions, but there's a lacking political will to get them done. Now, there was some bit of a compromise yesterday on biodiversity. Who knows if it's going to be implemented? You think not. You are somehow optimistic, yet not that optimistic. So we have 10 years. That's not, not a lot to make a big change operation. It hasn't looked good before. What would make it look good now? I mean, uh there's this idea that at some point there will be an awakening of some religious kind where a lot of people will realize that, okay, what this means is I'm going to go to work tomorrow morning and I will actually make some changes. Is that what we're depending on? Or does it not have to be an awakening for this decade to actually make a difference?
1: It does have to be. An awakening, yes, a much broader awakening than we have now. Yeah. Because the techno the technology is um, absolutely necessary. And and there's no good, no good saying we don't need that. We this decarbonization story is as urgent as you can imagine. And yes, all the technologies exist to make it possible to do it in a very short period of time. I mean, genuinely, if we approached climate change and the climate emergency with the same degree of purpose as we've approached the public health emergency that is COVID, we could have the entire world's electricity system run on renewable electricity by between 2030 and 2035. Done and dusted, finished. Every single person's electricity needs met using those technologies. So the technology is absolutely crucial. But the thing that I I think, not just myself, but everybody, continues to emphasize, is if all you're doing is swapping in one energy generation system for another, you're not going to touch the fundamentals of what keeps the wheels of our economy churning. And that means we have to look deeper, and that means we have to have a deeper awakening, as you put it. And I can't see that we'll get a fast enough process of change without that deeper awakening, which is why, by the way, Charles, I don't talk about optimism. I am absolutely not an optimist um but neither am i a pessimist i'd like to talk about realistic hope yeah. because hope depends on action and often pessimism and optimism depend on acting almost as an observer of what's happening rather than being an active participant in the change process
0: yeah i guess the term here is more of an emergency mindset right so you cuz you speak you do speak yes. about mindsets and uh, so yes. So things are possible. It's not like we're looking for new rocket science Apollo projects to get this done. Although, I mean, that might be helpful too, but something needs to be done. Will there have to be some massive ecological crisis again for this to happen?
1: Yeah, this is the sort of um, ultimate theory of change that Humankind is so short-sighted, so fixed on the near term, so persuaded that our current economic model will somehow eventually give them the things they're looking for in life, that it's only traumatic Mm -hmm. pain across whole societies that will actually bring about a process of change that touches the sides of the emergency that we're in at the moment. And I can sort of... I I mean, I I really find this very difficult because I suspect that that is true, that we are going to need some semi-collapse scenarios coming true in our world. Um, And it's not a particularly happy place to live in once you come to terms with that. I'll just give you my 30-second mega-collapse scenario to demonstrate what I mean. Okay, so this is an example. Not just a climate-induced disaster, but a climate-induced disaster that crashes the global economy, Mm -hmm. from which there is recovery, but it's recovery on very different terms. So something like the largest storm, hurricane, ever coming in off the Atlantic, completely submerging the whole of Miami and all that part of Florida total collapse of the insurance industry as a consequence in America, total collapse of the global insurance industry across the world as a consequence of that, total collapse of the economic system as a consequence of the insurance system collapsing. Now, that's pretty grim, and the lives of hundreds of millions of people will be rendered utterly miserable as a consequence of that. But at least it would remind people that the financial costs of what we're doing to the climate now are getting worse every year. And if we continue down this path, they will become literally unlivable with. So I don't know how many more of those kind of climate-induced financial disasters we need, but it'll only be when there's a big dollar sign attached to it that the people in the rich world wake up to the consequences of this.
0: Well, but to your point, this summer was an unprecedented drought across much of the world and there was pretty visible results. You know, you have Mississippi rivers drying out for the summer, like rivers all across the world essentially that even are supply chain shipping routes and they were drying out. There are yep. true economic consequences, but but they are maybe not big enough. Which is an
1: extraordinary place to be in, isn't it? I, I read that um, every year um, Swiss Re, the one of the world's largest reinsurance companies, produces this summary of climate-induced financial damage. And they just brought out their prospectus for 2022. They'll revise it in 2023. But they were talking about $115 billion of damage from climate-induced disasters of one kind or another. You have to add to that all the underinsured losses and then the non-insured, so the completely uninsured disasters. So we could be looking as much at as five hundred billion, or uh, sorry, two hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of damage in twenty twenty two alone. That's traumatic damage. Yeah, that doesn't touch the chronic damage that you're talking about. I think comes what, the-
0: I think what you and I perhaps are insinuating here is that we're looking at trillion dollar damages before there's going to be a any kind of a dent to their general public perception among the elite at least. And then the question is, of course, what that's going to do to the general population, because if it is so unevenly felt, you know, how is it going to yeah. affect everyone? Then this is a yeah. challenge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I suspect that is what we're looking at. But that's the other thing that I find the eco-modernists and the the degrowthers alike, funnily enough. What I find a bit peculiar is that they are reluctant to engage in a social justice discussion because if we just have that impact, we know that that impact will disproportionately devastate the lives of the already least well off people in society. So, Mm. sustainability without social justice for me is another of these big lies, Mm. and the eco modernist movement could barely bring itself to talk about social justice
0: you know this is a bit strange to me at least because my mindset is that every human being is also a potential for uh well for value but for innovation and for growth so i don't quite understand this idea that we're going to ignore 80% or 95% of the population really and and then just do sort of eco-modernists to squeeze out more on you know on the top I, I, and that doesn't make a lot of sense, at least if you think about land use and stuff. I mean, think about what might happen to Africa if there is no such readjustment. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on Africa? It's a pretty interesting continent. What's gonna, well, what's going to happen there if, if if this kind of readjustment doesn't, doesn't happen? Is well, it just going to be a playground for disastrous uh, sort of like post-colonial battle for... Extracting even more? Yeah. Uh, and actually,
1: the the story at COP27, the climate conference this year, yep. Sharm el-Sheikh, because it was the African COP, there was a lot more focus on what's going to happen in African countries. And um, people were really beginning to wake up to the fact that climate damage is already a massive issue. So Kenya was in Sharm el-Sheikh saying that in 2021, somewhere between 3 and 5% of its total GDP mm-hmm. had to be spent on dealing with climate disasters. That's a massive economic hit. And then you had other African countries coming forward saying, well, we're sitting on huge reserves of oil and gas. And you people in the West, you've had your share of the hydrocarbon bounty. Why are you not going to let us have our share? Or are you going to do something else which will benefit us um, As uh, in I guess, in compensation for not getting our hydrocarbons out of the ground. So Africa is really the epicentre where many of these crises will play out. It also, I'm not sure whether we want to get into this discussion now, Trond, it's also, of course, the one continent where population growth is still at its uh, fiercest. We still have average fertility in many African countries now way in excess of where average fertility has landed in many, many other countries around the world, not just rich countries, but many other countries. And that population dynamic is going to be probably the one of the biggest factors that will determine the future of the continent as a whole, Africa as a whole.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a massive discussion. I I happen to have a say se- well, I mean, we're not the only ones who have a hunch that something big is going down when whenever population grows that fast and to the magnitudes we're talking about here i also happen to think that they may not stay in one place right i mean it, if if the if the yeah. s- system doesn't adjust there's just not any i mean you could forget sustainability but you can forget any kind of order right Exactly in in that situation. So so that's exactly. a, a whole other whole other story. Well, let's talk a little bit about the future generally. So you say we have a decade to stop runaway climate change. We need an emergency mindset. We may not get it until we have a crisis. So then that brings us to you know, will there be such a thing in the next decade? Uh, without it, we'll we'll do some piecemeal piecemeal change. And then what's what's the future of the environmental movement? What's the future of system change? Um, if you go beyond the decade, where where do you see us as a human yeah. species?
1: I mean, I do think that uh, although it, there's a tendency to sort of imagine that environmentalism or sustainability is still just a bit part player on the stage, actually, more and more people are, are beginning to realize the need for more profound change. And I really do. I don't think that's just me being. You know, naive beyond belief at this stage. I, I see a readiness to accept a different perspective on all this stuff. So much of what we're doing at the moment is preparing for this very different world. If you think about all the new ideas coming forward, for instance, on regenerative agriculture, Right. if you think of all the new thinking on the circular economy, you think about different ideas about the energy economy, which will be based on much more decentralized, much more community-based, if you think about all the ideas that were there about creating opportunities for really good work in society, land-use-based as much as anything else. For me, although these ideas are not that well represented in mainstream democracies or anywhere in the world at the moment in terms of what's actually happening, it is the new world in waiting. It is the world that needs to be worked up and tested so that when the old world becomes increasingly precarious. So you from you, you will know this. I'm I am a bit of a a fan of Antonio Gramsci and his very simple encapsulation of all of this, which is the crisis consists in the fact that the old world is dying and the new world is struggling to be born. And for me, that is the simplest message about how I need to continue my life as an activist. I need to act as a midwife to the birth of the new world in everything I do. And I've always emphasized solutions and new ways of doing things and improvements in people's lives directly. That's always been part of my thing. But at the same time, I am not naive. I need to be part of killing the old world. And killing it fast, because that old world is still strangling the birth of the new world. So the message for me, the mandate for me is very clear. Accelerate the death of the old and bring forward as rapidly and compassionately as possible the birth of the new.
0: Okay, so we need a new we need a new new deal. There needs to be a new political We need a new deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We do because we can't continue with where we are now. And politicians, you can see they've got a foot in both camps. I mean, the, the truth is, though, the foot in the old world is a lot bigger than their tentative little toe-tapping in the new world. So we that's where we are at the moment. We're split between these two things, and it leads to an awful lot of dysfunctional pain
0: in the meantime. Last question. So you've you've been doing this for a while. Do you see um, do you see individual figures rising who are going to make a change here? Do you see any systems, any national systems, any organizational functions that you were you seeing this new world manifest itself? You were talking about the regenerative trends in mm. agriculture. So regeneration is another concept that people have. Yeah, high aspirations yeah. for but it, it it's also very often misunderstood and it's used you know by the longevity yeah. people like it, it can be used in so many different ways what, yeah. where where should one look for inspiration or for you know an, i don't know some signs of this new world
1: yeah i look in two places um the first is young people not with any romantic sense of what young people can do life for many young people today in both the rich world and the poor world is not brilliant covid knocked the stuffing out of young people's climate activism think back to 2019 it was an amazing time where the voice of young people was heard loud and clear for the first time in global deliberations about these things i know that that voice will come back i know young people will play a massively important part in this and the second place i go to for hope is i can't help but point out as two men talking about this stuff, John, that most of the leadership comes from women today. And for me, the whole world of sustainability is one which is increasingly informed, driven, and inspired by the voice of women. And most of the politicians that I would point to in the world as making a contribution, the outstanding leadership, for instance, of Mia Motley at COP27, who just articulated things in a completely different way, that... The brilliance of our, our one and only Green MP in the UK, Caroline Lucas. I just look at this quality of leadership in women today, and I I know that that is going to be transformative. So for me, I can kind of work with those incredibly strong trends in society because I think they they will in the not too distant future be transformative.
0: Well, it's good that you're seeing it. Um... Let's see what this decade brings. It's going to it's going to be a an interesting ride, I think. Hopefully we'll 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 have another decade too, but it, the conditions could like you point out deteriorate so much that the at least the urgency would would then bring us into a whole other ball game where um it's not so much existing technologies anymore. It is more true emergency measures, right? So um, Exactly. So. Very interesting times. Thank you so much for sharing uh, uh, some moments with me here, and uh, I hope I can have you back. I hope we have something to talk about in ten years or or in five years. <laughs> we will. Don't worry. We will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All good to hear. <laughs> You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trond Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out Futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondbundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized, too, on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.